Section 17 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1 by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Life of Savage, I Tart 35. Johnson's Friendship with Savage, Anno Domini, 1744. 1744, I Tart 35. It does not appear that he wrote anything in 1744 for the Gentleman's Magazine but the preface dagger his life of Berthier was now republished in a pamphlet by itself but he produced one work this year fully sufficient to maintain the high reputation which he had acquired this was the life of richard savage asterisk a man of whom it is difficult to speak impartially without wondering that he was for some time the intimate companion of Johnson. Footnote. One explanation may be found of Johnson's intimacy with Savage and with other men of loose character. He was, writes Hawkins, one of the most quick-sighted men I ever knew in discovering the good and amiable qualities of others. Hawkins's Johnson, page 50. He was, says Boswell, post-April the 13th, 1778, willing to take men as they are, imperfect, and with a mixture of good and bad qualities. How intimate the two men were is shown by the following passage in Johnson's Life of Savage. Savage left London in July 1739, having taken leave with great tenderness of his friends, and parted from the author of this narrative with tears in his eyes. Johnson's Works, Volume 8, page 173, and a footnote. Of whom it is difficult to speak impartially without wondering that he was for some time the intimate companion of Johnson, for his character was marked by profligacy, insolence, and ingratitude. Footnote. As a specimen of his temper, I insert the following letter from him to a noble lord to whom he was under great obligations but who on account of his bad conduct was obliged to discard him the original was in the hands of the late francis cockaine cust esq one of his majesty's counsel learned in the law right honourable brute and booby I find you want, as Mr. Blank Blank is pleased to hint, to swear away my life, that is, the life of your creditor, because he asks you for a debt. The public shall soon be acquainted with this, to judge whether you are not fitter to be an Irish evidence than to be an Irish peer. I defy and despise you. I am your determined adversary, R.S. Boswell. The noble lord was no doubt Lord Tyrconnell. See Johnson's Works, Volume 8, page 140. Mr. Cust is mentioned post, page 170, end of footnote. Yet, as he undoubtedly had a warm and vigorous, though unregulated mind, had seen life in all its varieties, and been much in the company of statesmen and wits of his time. Footnote. 
savage took all opportunities of conversing familiarly with those who were most conspicuous at that time for their power or their influence he watched their looser moments and examined their domestic behaviour with that acuteness which nature had given him and which the uncommon variety of his life had contributed to increase and that inquisitiveness which must always be produced in a vigorous mind by an absolute freedom from all pressing or domestic engagements johnson's works volume eight page one three five into footnote he could communicate to johnson an abundant supply of such materials as his philosophical curiosity most eagerly desired and the savages misfortunes and misconduct had reduced him to the lowest state of wretchedness as a writer for bread footnote. thus he spent his time in mean expedients and tormenting suspense living for the greatest part in the fear of prosecutions from his creditors and consequently skulking in obscure parts of the town of which he was no stranger to the remotest corners Ibid, page one six five and a footnote his visits to st john's gate naturally brought johnson and him together footnote sir john hawkins gives the world to understand that johnson being an admirer of genteel manners was captivated by the address and demeanour of savage who as to his exterior was to a remarkable degree accomplished hawkins's life page fifty two but sir john's notions of gentility must appear somewhat ludicrous from his stating the following circumstance as presumptive evidence that savage was a good swordsman that he understood the exercise of a gentleman's weapon may be inferred from the use made of it in that rash encounter which is related in his life the dexterity here alluded to was that savage in a nocturnal fit of drunkenness stabbed a man at a coffee-house and killed him for which he was tried at the old bailey and found guilty of murder johnson indeed describes him as having a grave and manly deportment a solemn dignity of mien but which upon a nearer acquaintance softened it into an engaging easiness of manners johnson's works volume eight page one eight seven how highly johnson admired him for that knowledge which he himself so much cultivated and what kindness he entertained for him appears from the following lines in the gentleman's magazine for april seventeen thirty eight which i am assured were written by johnson ad ricardum savage humanis furium generis cui pectore fervet o collat humanum teico vaiatque genus boswell the epigram is inscribed ad ricardum savage amigerum humani generis amatorim gentleman's magazine volume eight page two ten and a footnote dining behind the screen i type thirty five it is melancholy to reflect that johnson and savage were sometimes in such extreme indigence footnote. the following striking proof of johnson's extreme indigence when he published the life 
of Savage, was communicated to the author by Mr. Richard Stowe of Apsley in Bedfordshire, from the information of Mr. Walter Hart, author of The Life of Gustavus Adolphus. Soon after Savage's life was published, Mr. Hart dined with Edward Cave, and occasionally praised it. Soon after meeting him, Cave said, You made a man very happy t'other day. How could that be? says Hart. Nobody was there but ourselves. Cave answered by reminding him that a plate of victuals was sent behind the screen, which was to Johnson, dressed so shabbily that he did not choose to appear, but on hearing the conversation was highly delighted with the encomiums on his book. Malone. He desired much to be alone, yet he always loved good talk, and often would get behind the screen to hear it. Great Hart's Account of Fearing, Pilgrim's Progress, Part 2. Hart was tutor to Lord Chesterfield's son. See post 1770 in Dr. Maxwell's Collectania and March the 30th, 1781. End of footnote. Was sometimes in such extreme indigence that they could not pay for a lodging, so that they have wandered together whole nights in the streets. Johnson in want of a lodging, Anno Domini, seventeen forty four. Footnote. Johnson has told me that whole nights have been spent by him and Savage in a perambulation round the squares of Westminster, St. James's in particular when all the money they could both raise was less than sufficient to purchase for them the shelter and sordid comforts of a knight's cellar. Hawkins's Johnson, page 53. Where was Mrs. Johnson living at this time? This, perhaps, was the time of which Johnson wrote when, after telling of a silver cup which his mother had bought him and marked Sam I, he says, the cup was one of the last pieces of plate which dear Tetty sold in our distress. Account of Johnson's Early Life, page 18. Yet it is not easy to understand how, if there was a lodging for her, there was not one for him. She might have been living with friends. We have a statement by Hawkins, page 89, that there was a temporary separation of Johnson from his wife. He adds that while he was in a lodging in Fleet Street, she was harboured by a friend near the tower. This separation, he insinuates, rose by an estrangement caused by Johnson's indifference in the discharge of the domestic virtues. It is far more likely that it rose from destitution. Shenstone, in a letter written in 1743, gives a curious account of the streets of London through which Johnson wandered. He says, London is really dangerous at this time. The pickpockets, formerly content with mere filching, make no scruple to knock people down with bludgeons in Fleet Street and the Strand, and that at no later hour than eight o'clock at night. 
but in the piazzas covent garden they come in large bodies armed with kutos and attack whole parties so that the danger of coming out of playhouses is of some weight in the opposite scale when i am disposed to go to them oftener than i ought shenstone's works edit volume three page seventy three and a footnote yet in these almost incredible scenes of distress we may suppose that savage mentioned many of the anecdotes with which johnson afterwards enriched the life of his unhappy companion and those of other poets he told sir joshua reynolds that one night in particular when savage and he walked round st james's square for want of a lodging they were not at all depressed by their situation but in high spirits and brimful of patriotism traversed the square for several hours inveighed against the minister and resolved they would stand by their country Footnote. savage lodged as much by accident as he dined and passed the night sometimes in mean houses and sometimes when he had not money to support even the expenses of these receptacles walked about the streets till he was weary and lay down in the summer upon a bulk or in the winter with his associates in poverty among the ashes of a glass-house in this manner were passed those days and those nights which nature had enabled him to have employed in elevated speculations useful studies or pleasing conversation johnson's works volume eight page one five nine end of footnote i am afraid however that by associating with savage who was habituated to the dissipation and licentiousness of the town johnson though his good principles remained steady did not entirely preserve that conduct for which in days of greater simplicity he was remarked by his friend mr hector but was imperceptibly led into some indulgencies which occasioned much distress to his virtuous mind that johnson was anxious that an authentic and favourable account of his extraordinary friend should first get possession of the public attention is evident from a letter which he wrote in the gentleman's magazine for august of the year preceding its publication mr urban as your collections show how often you have owed the ornaments of your poetical pages to the correspondence of the unfortunate and ingenious mr savage i doubt not that you have so much regard to his memory as to encourage any design that may have a tendency to the preservation of it from insults or calumnies and therefore with some degree of assurance entreat you to inform the public that his life will speedily be published by a person who was favoured with his confidence and received from himself an account of most of the transactions which he proposes to mention to the time of his retirement to swansea in wales from that period to his death in the prison of bristol the account will be continued from materials still less liable to objection his own letters and those of his friends some of which will be inserted in the work and abstracts of others subjoined in the margin it may be reasonably imagined that others may have the same design but as it is not credible that they can obtain the same materials 
it must be expected that they will supply from invention the want of intelligence and that under the title of the life of savage they will publish only a novel filled with romantic adventures and imaginary amours you may therefore perhaps gratify the lovers of truth and wit by giving me leave to inform them in your magazine that my account will be published in octavo by mr roberts in warwick lane no signature footnote cave was the purchaser of the copyright and the following is a copy of johnson's receipt for the money the fourteenth day of december received of mr edward cave the sum of fifteen guineas in full for compiling and writing the life of richard savage esquire deceased and in full for all materials thereto applied and not found by the said edward cave i say received by me samuel johnson december the fourteenth seventeen forty three right the title page is as follows an account of the life of mr richard savage son of the earl rivers london printed for j roberts in warwick lane seventeen forty four it reached a second edition in seventeen forty eight a third in seventeen sixty seven and a fourth in seventeen sixty nine a french translation was published in seventeen seventy one end of footnote reynolds reads the life of savage i thirty five in february seventeen forty four it accordingly came forth from the shop of roberts between whom and johnson i have not traced any connection except the casual one of this publication footnote roberts published in seventeen forty five johnson's observations on macbeth see gentleman's magazine volume fifteen pages one one two 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 four end of footnote in johnson's life of savage although it must be allowed that its moral is the reverse of respicere exempla vita morumque iubebo footnote horace ars poetica book one line three one seven end of footnote a very useful lesson is inculcated to guard men of warm passions from a too free indulgence of them and the various incidents are related in so clear and animated a manner and illuminated throughout with so much philosophy that it is one of the most interesting narratives in the english language sir joshua reynolds told me that upon his return from italy footnote, in the autumn of seventeen fifty two northcote's reynolds volume one page fifty two and a footnote he met with it in devonshire knowing nothing of its author and began to read it while he was standing with his arm leaning against a chimney-piece it seized his attention so strongly that not being able to lay down the book till he had finished it when he attempted to move he found his arm totally benumbed the rapidity with which this work was composed is a wonderful circumstance johnson has been heard to say i wrote forty-eight of the printed octavo pages of the life of savage at a sitting but then i sat up all night footnote journal of a tour to the hebrides third edition page thirty-five page fifty-five august the nineteenth seventeen seventy-three boswell end of footnote 
Resemblance of Johnson to Savage, Anno Domini, 1744. He exhibits the genius of Savage to the best advantage in the specimens of his poetry which he has selected, some of which are of uncommon merit. We indeed occasionally find such vigour and such point as might make us suppose that the generous aid of Johnson had been imparted to his friend. Mr. Thomas Wharton made this remark to me, and in support of it quoted from the poem entitled The Bastard, a line in which the fancied superiority of one stamped in nature's mint with ecstasy, footnote, mint of ecstasy, Savage's work, 1777, volume 2, page 91, end of footnote, is contrasted with a regular lawful descendant of some great and ancient family. No tenth transmitter of a foolish face. Footnote. He lives to build, not boast, a generous race. No tenth transmitter of a foolish face. Ibid. End of footnote. But the fact is that this poem was published some years before Johnson and Savage were acquainted. Footnote. The Bastard, a poem, inscribed with all due reverence to Mrs. Brett, once Countess of Macclesfield, by Richard Savage, son of the late Earl Rivers, London, printed for T. Worrell, 1728, folio, first edition. P. Cunningham. Between Savage's character as drawn by Johnson and Johnson himself, there are many points of likeness. Each always preserved a steady confidence in his own capacity. And of each, it might be said, whatever faults may be imputed to him, the virtue of suffering well cannot be denied him. Each excelled in the arts of conversation, and therefore willingly practised them. In Savage's refusal to enter a house till some clothes had been taken away that had been left for him, with some neglect of ceremonies, we have the counterpart of Johnson's throwing away the new pair of shoes that had been set at his door. Of Johnson, the following lines are as true as of Savage. His distresses, however afflictive, never dejected him. In his lowest state he wanted not spirit to assert the natural dignity of wit and was always ready to repress that insolence which the superiority of fortune incited. He never admitted any gross familiarities, or submitted to be treated otherwise than as an equal. Of both men it might be said that it was in no time of his life any part of his character to be the first of the company that desired to separate. Each would prolong his conversation till midnight without considering that business might require his friend's application in the morning. And each could plead the same excuse that when he left his company he was abandoned to gloomy reflections. Each had the same accurate judgment, the same quick apprehension, the same tenacious memory. In reading such lines as the following, who does not think not of the man whose biography was written, but of the biographer himself? 
he had the peculiar felicity that his attention never deserted him he was present to every object and regardful of the most trifling occurrences to this quality is to be imputed the extent of his knowledge compared with the small time which he spent in visible endeavours to acquire it he mingled in cursory conversation with the same steadiness of attention as others apply to a lecture his judgment was eminently exact both with regard to writings and to men the knowledge of life was indeed his chief attainment of johnson's london as of savages the wanderer it might equally well be said nor can it without some degree of indignation and concern be told that he sold the copy for ten guineas End of section 17